Hello, David Oakes here, and welcome to a bonus episode of what is not strictly a trees a crowd. It's a different format, a little more formal, and rather excitingly recorded in front of a live audience. What you're about to hear was recorded at the Times and the Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival five days ago on the 9th of October. This event was supported by the Woodland Trust, and I was there in my capacity as an ambassador for this marvellous charity. As you'll hear, we had a few technical issues with slide presentations on the day, but as this is a podcast, you'll have to use your imagination either way, so hopefully that won't be a problem. If you'd like to know more about this festival, my two guests on the podcast, Christiana Payne and Angela Summerfield, or the Woodland Trust's current campaign, The Big Climate Fight Back, and their mass planting event on the 30th of November, please head across to our website at treesacrowd.fm. Until then, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is The Art of Trees. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Um, Hello, welcome to the Cheltenham Literature Festival. Um, I presume many of you have seen other things already, so I hope we can live up to their high expectations. Um, This is The Art of Trees. First off, um, an apology. An hour is by no means enough time to cover everything that we would like. We've got to consider the whole history of art and then couple that with a mass variety of trees and what they represent, and that would take an age. Ultimately, what we will show you today, hopefully, is that trees mean so much to so many... They represent the pastoral to the political, uh, national heritage and character, as well as an ecological touchstone in this climate-aware age. But before I properly introduce Christiana and Angela, I would like to have the lights up for a quick moment, if possible. Is that doable? There we go. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, we're going to start with some audience participation. This is, oh, there's a sigh over there. Um, okay, I want you just to raise your hand. Um, if you have ever drawn a tree at any point in your life, from a child with crayons, <laughs> yeah, you join in on stage. Okay, so that's oh, wow. actually put uh, put them all down again. Put your hand up if you haven't drawn a tree. Okay, so that's that's a hundred percent of you have drawn a tree. Great. Okay, hands back up again. Leave your hand up if that tree. That, all of them. <laughs> no hiding. Leave that tree up if you deliberately drew a specific species of tree. Ooh. Ooh, I think we might have a pretty good turn up. I should leave my hand up there. That's a good, I'd say that's about a quarter of you, maybe a third. That's good. Okay, hands down. Um, more complicated question. Uh, when drawing your tree, was that tree representative of a symbol, a metaphor, a festival, or something else? Or was it simply a tree? Okay, there's one, two, three over there, four, five on stage. Okay, six. Seven, okay. That's nice to know. And final question. Who thinks a tree in its natural form is a piece of art in itself? Why well, think I want to say that? And they almost all go back up. Oh. Except for one of our panellists. <laughs> who's not sure. And so what is art, Christian? Um, okay, wonderful. So that's basically what we're going to try and discuss. Trees as art, trees in art, trees in art representing something else, and trees in art as trees, and then many other tributaries, roots, and all the everything else to go away. So let me introduce my wonderful guests. To my far right, we have Christiana, who is a professor of history of art at Oxford Brookes University, as well as looking at the history of trees in her book, Silent Witnesses, which looked at painters from 1760 and 1870 in Britain and their presentation of trees. She's also explored the pre-Raphaelite landscape painters and painters of British coastlines in the 19th century. Um, Alongside that, she's curated many major international exhibitions, including one that's coming up, which is... Dreams and Nightmares. When's that on? At the Higgins Bedford, and it opens on Saturday. There you go. See you there. And it has no trees in it, I'm afraid. Then don't go. (laughs) Um, And in the middle, we have Angela, um, Dr. Angela Summerfield, who is a contemporary British artist, has a PhD in art history, and was formerly the senior art curator at the Royal Academy. She is one of a prestigious group of artists known as the Arborealists, and provided the lead essay in a book about the group and their many illustrious members, which was entitled, Why Do Artists Paint Trees? But we're going to kick off with Christiana Payne. Give us the whole history of trees. <laughs> right. Well, I'm hoping... Ah, yeah. Magic. 
I will have an image. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being here. Um, I'm just going to show you a few key images to just give you an idea of how British artists used trees from the mid-18th century through to the early 20th century. So this is a very quick, quick history. And I'm starting with this famous painting from the National Gallery of Mr. and Mrs. Andrews by Gainsborough. Now, we don't know who decided that they should pose in front of an oak tree, and it's actually an oak tree that's still standing today, the Aubrey's oak, but we can guess at what it might have meant to them. Oaks were regarded as very important because you needed about 2,000 oak trees to make a warship, and British naval power was a really key thing in the 18th century. And, of course, all the ships were made of wood. They're also symbols of longevity because oak trees lived for hundreds of years, and they were regarded as a sign of an old family that had been on an estate for a long time. So, and, of course, we have the idea of the family tree. So the fact that they're in front of an, ancient, an old oak tree or a mature oak tree, and then they have three young oak trees over on the right, shows that they're into good land management and also patriotic land management. So Britain actually has more ancient trees than most other countries, um, even though our tree cover is generally poor, and even at the, um, at the height of the Napoleonic Wars, around about 1800, um, early 1800s, when trees were needed for the navy, um, many of these oak trees were, were revered and protected and survived. And this was partly because they were associated with the Druids, who at that time was, were regarded as the original ancient Britons. Samuel Palmer delineated the tortuous forms of the old oaks of Lullingstone. Again, they're still there, Lullingstone Park in Kent. And he treated them almost like an exercise in figure drawing. He talked about the sinews of the trees. They have such life in this drawing that you almost expect them to move. And I have to admit, Palmer is my favourite tree painter. He once noted that sometimes trees are seen like men. He described one as a princess. And he invested them with spiritual significance. He especially loved flowering trees, like the horse chestnut. So um, this is a watercolour in the Ashmolean Museum, which I chose for the cover of my book, because for me it sums up the symbiotic relationship between trees and people, and also, for that matter, animals. Um, trees protect us, they do so many good things for us, and we, in turn, should um, cherish them and look after them. In the period covered by my book, many artists were trying to draw trees very, very carefully and accurately, and John Constable was probably the best. Um, he exhibited this large, very detailed drawing of elm trees. It's about this size. It's in the V&A. Um, he showed it at the Royal Academy, but nobody wanted to buy it, and so he kept it for the rest of his life. And so 18 years after he made the drawing, he was able to record on the back of it that the noble elm in the centre had blown down in 1835. Many writers and artists at this time thought of trees in human terms. They wrote their biographies, um, they painted their portraits, they strove to convey their character. And elms, of course, were very familiar trees in the landscape until the onset of Dutch elm disease in the 1970s. So Constable loved elms, but his absolute favourite was the ash tree, which again is now threatened by disease. Um, this is a, a good example of how he considered trees to be like people. In one of his lectures on landscape, he showed this large drawing and described the fate of this young lady who had died of shame after having a large board nailed to her trunk. And he said, Many of my Hampstead friends may remember this young lady at the entrance to the village. Her fate was distressing, for it is scarcely too much to say that she died of a broken heart. A wretched board was nailed to her side, on which was written in large letters, All vagrants and beggars will be dealt with according to law. The tree seemed to have felt the disgrace. This beautiful creature was cut down to a stump, just high enough to hold the board. A lot of the writers I looked at really felt that trees could have feelings and could behave like human beings. And what fascinates me is that all the recent research on trees seemed to suggest that they are like us in many more ways than we used to, used to think. Trees were also associated with the paternalistic values of the aristocracy and the landed gentry, including the, the value of charity. And in Constable's drawing, there are two vagrants at the foot of the tree, a poor mother and her baby, and they're trying to take shelter, although the tree is already losing its foliage. Looking at the art of the mid-19th century, I found lots of descriptions and paintings of people enjoying themselves in woodland, and especially in the beech woods of southern England. Um, obviously, people were going off, having picnics, playing music, reading in woods, um, escaping from the hot city, especially in the, in the month of June possibly because this was the time when it, it began to be safe to go out into the woods. Campaigns were formed to preserve much-loved areas from development, and one particular example was Burnham Beaches, which was about to be 
chopped down and, and given over to um, expensive houses. But the City of London Corporation bought it in 1880 to protect it from development. And it was acknowledged at the time that the fact that artists had been showing pictures of it in the 1860s and 1870s had helped to make people realise what an important resource it was. And this um, watercolour by Miles Burkett Foster, I think, is one of the best views of Burnham Beaches. From the same period, the 1860s, this watercolour by George Price Boyce celebrates the everyday landscape of rural England with pollarded willows, an apple tree, and wooden fences. And Angela was just saying she knows a descendant of George Price Boyce who is still an artist. Yes, Um, yes. It carries on. So no nasty signboards here. The mother and baby... Um, which you can just see in the bottom right-hand corner, look safe and happy in My their sun. in the way of that one. I'm meadow. Oh, Maybe. right. How's that? <laughs> um, I like this painting too because it has lots of birds in it, like the guinea fowl on the left and other birds in the tree. So it's a reminder of how important trees are to other wildlife. Now, my book only takes the story up to 1870 because that was still quite a lot to cover. And it doesn't cover Paul Nash, but everybody loves Paul Nash's trees. In fact, when I tweet a picture by Paul Nash, it always gets more interest than any other artist, even Samuel Palmer, I'm sad to say. Paul Nash famously wrote in the letter not just that trees were seen as people, but he knew trees were people. And he even wrote a poem about dreaming trees sunk in a swoon of sleep. Um, I don't know if trees dream, but again, recent research shows that they do actually drop their branches ever so slightly at night, so they sort of go to sleep. Do you think they dream? Possibly. I wouldn't put it past them. Okay, (laughs) on the fence there. (laughs) And this is a moonlit view of what his family called their bird garden um, and has a magical, mystical effect. And conversely, Nash used dead trees to express the devastating loss of human life in the First World War. But this painting, I think, has more meaning for us every year. Um, It's an apocalyptic vision of the damage that human beings can do to the landscape. So in the past... British artists, and of course it's not just British artists, artists around the world have found a wide range of symbolic references in the subject of trees. And some of them may seem obsolete now, like the association perhaps with the aristocracy and land ownership. I don't know. Um, But certainly the um, association with warships. We don't build warships of oak trees anymore. But the role that trees have to play in protecting us and also in promoting human well-being is still of massive importance. So thank you. Wonderful, great stuff. Um, round of applause. Great. Um, we'll go into it a bit later, but I, I find it fascinating the idea that artists obviously personify and to an extent anthropomorphize trees into having a character and yet can represent them both in an abstract form and in a technically realistic form. I want to chat about that a bit later, but mm. before we do that, um, let's move on to Angela. As someone who has and does and will do again draws trees... Take us through some of your work. Right. Off we go. I'm going to be showing a selection of my drawings and paintings which explore how and why a contemporary artist paints trees. Image one, if we can call it up, after Paul Nash. You might have to do it in performative mime, I'm afraid. (laughs) No. (laughs) The wave? Does that do anything? Where is our it was technical? working earlier. It, yes, it was. Where is our technical help? How are we getting on? Should we just continue anyway and then catch up with it in a second? Great, thank you. Do you mind? Okay, so um, image one shows my garden in North Gloucestershire in early autumn. As you can see, or hopefully as, <laughs> as you will be as able you can to imagine. see, <laughs> with a little bit of your imagination, uh, we, <laughs> we have the remains of a late 19th century arboretum on our property which includes native and non-native trees. And we've also planted over 50 trees ourselves to create a parklands-type garden. This is to encourage wildlife, of course, and also to give aesthetic possibilities for painting. I'm now going to start by showing you a series of my in-the-field drawings in different media. Oh, we're alive. There we go. Ah, here we are. So that's image two. Um, The first three drawings, that's number two, oh, number three is coming up, are in pastel chalks on angra paper and feature the silhouettes of trees. They are accompanied by brief handwritten notes, very much following the example of Constable, for example, and um, they, of course, record the seasons, the time of day, climatic conditions, date, and my sensory responses. 
the first pastel drawing you saw features the Scots pine. These types of drawings explore the temporal nature of art, in other words, the time-based nature of drawing, uh, where a response to a recognisable figurative element is informed by an emotional response at a particular moment and time of year. Um, then we, I think you can cast your mind back to these images that are passing before us. Uh, we have uh, an ash tree with the note, for example, openness, and then the following image showed lime trees with the field note fragile, uh, which is also a reference to the wind-blown movement of trees and the nature of lime trees to lose their branches, particularly when there's a gust of wind. Uh, this, the first drawing features an ancient oak in a woodland, and that's the one which had largely lost its bark and caught my attention because of its age and, as I've just mentioned, its loss of, of bark. And uh, these details convey the idea of an ancient tree bearing witness to the passage of time and also ecological issues. So that particular drawing um, has a formal title, which is The History of the World According to Trees. And it's part of an ongoing series in my uh, art practice. Um, I was experimenting with darting movements of pencil to accentuate the gnarled aspect of the bark, as well as conveying the resilience of character associated with the oak. And, of course, I think everybody would agree here that the oak has a particular significance uh, for people in this country. Do you mind if I just jump yes. in now? Just, yes. Oh, just to open okay. up a bit. Um, we've seen all the photos which are, yes. uh, the images okay. which are absolutely astounding. I think Thank we all you. agree with that. Um, it, it, sort of bring, it draws me back to the initial question, which is a naturalist often in the past to categorise things had to be able to draw. Yes. But so much of what you both mentioned is about having uh, an emotional, sensorial response to something. Yes, yes. So I, I guess my question is, are you capable of capturing a tree without having an emotional response to it? I would say, for an artist, you'd be a very strange artist if you didn't have an emotional response. Having said that, I'm sure Christina is going to pump, uh, leap in in a moment and point out how trees were represented under the term topographical art. You want to say something about Paul Semby? Oh, his trees are wonderful, though. Well... <laughs> But no. they were intended to be documents. Is, yeah, is that perception? I guess that's my question. When yeah, all these trees were categorised and there yes. were records made, yeah. whether or not they were made as a work of art, they were yes. certainly perceived as much, yes. whether it be Sambi or well, Loudon commissioned with the others. Yes, Paul Sambi was a topographical artist, but yes. actually that's what started me off on the book, um, was going to an exhibition of his work in Edinburgh, and there were these huge drawings of beech trees on the Luton Hoo estate, yes. and they're all still yes. in a private collection. They're in perfect condition, these watercolours. And I think he obviously had a very, very strong feeling for trees. Um, so, yeah, even, even a topographical artist. I mean, obviously there were artists who just put a tree in because they were expected to put a tree in. Sure. But the people I studied, they really had a very strong emotional attachment. And they chose specific times of year? Or what, what were they trying to do? You can't capture a tree in its entire lifetime as an image. I, I think they looked on drawing trees very much like drawing people. I mean, you know, trees had character. Sure. Um, William Gilpin talked about the oak and the ash being the Hercules and Venus of the woods. You know, they were thinking of trees like sculpture. Um, so there was that, and then, of course, the time, time of year as well. And whether a tree is young or old, um, the way that the life cycle of a tree reflects the life cycle of a human being, um, they were very interested in that too. Do you find that in your arboretum? Do you, have, do you feel like your tree... There you go, right on the time. <laughs> oh, no, it's gone again. Um, do you feel that your trees have characters and personalities? I mean, you've mentioned that you give your own uh, notes of how you emotionally responded to them. Um, I think it, it, this relates to a conversation we were having earlier about the notion of portraits and, and, and the fact that tree portraits, which of course have a very interesting history, uh, can be linked with the actual portrayal of the human being, hence our reference to the anthropological link, and that there will always be uh, an emotional response by the artist and therefore the portrayal of a particular tree will be both a portrait, in one sense, of an exterior uh, phenomenon, in this case the tree, uh, but also of the artist. Sure. Mm. 
Do you know, um, is it just the artists projecting their own emotions onto the tree? Or do tree, individual trees have particular character? Because I know there's a bit in Peter Volleben's book, um, oh, what's it called? See, no, Hidden can Life we, of Trees. Can we pause this before we, Ooh, we might end up with epile- epilepsy? <laughs> it's sort of flashing fast rather quickly. But, but he talks there about... You, that's a perfect one to stop. Yeah, he talks about three oak trees who, which, grow, who, sorry, which grow side by side and how they're all different. And you can't explain it in terms of where they are because they're all in the same place and they're all the same species. And yet they each grow in a different way. How do you feel then when you see multiple artists uh, capture the same tree? You, when you look at those images, whether it's... Um, was it the... Uh, I want to say Crowthorpe Oak. I don't mean that, do I? The Anchorwick U. That'll do. Yes. Um, <laughs> when different artists capture that same tree, you will have a response believing that it could be a different tree, even though you know it's the same shape. The artist may have imagined something more spiritual about it that day or something else in another way. Um, that's true. I've got two examples of, of prints of the Anchorwick U from the 1820s. And one shows it neatly trimmed, and the other one shows its branches feathering down to the ground. Uh-huh. And I was really puzzled by this. Um, you know, had it really changed so much in those eight years or whatever it was? And I came to the conclusion in the end, yes, it probably had changed. Um, that there were new fashions about how you manage trees. Um, but that also, that, yeah, the, the different style of the artist came into it as well. Do you ever find that with your work, Angela? deliberately reapproaching something to present something different or being inspired by a tree's changing emotional presence? I, I think, that my, well, I think, first of all, uh, trees will have a, a different resonance at different times of year, uh, without a doubt. But it, it does go back to the psychology always of the, of the artists as well. And it, it's something that I subscribe to. I'm very interested in the whole shift that took place for modern and contemporary artists that art should have an, an emotional content that's allied to uh, uh, an intellectual content mm. as well. Again, it goes back to my reference to the strong aesthetic. And so if you're saying that an artist is responding to particular characteristics of a tree, there is all the argument that an artist, by the very nature of that human individual, that they will be selecting certain characteristics... Mm rather than the suggestion, I mean, we haven't mentioned photography, mm. but the suggestion of the, the uncritical eye, the uninformed eye, the, uh, and so forth. Well, I mean, Tasta yes. Dean, in her, when she captured yes, her trees, true, yes. I mean, although the, the photographer herself was just taking a picture, the representation of that is full of meaning. Mm. And yeah, and, oh, and she response. painted majesty, didn't she, and mm-hmm. stately and beauty, which are also... Um, etched by um, Jacob George Strutt in the 1820s. Yeah, mm. same tree still there. So I guess one of the things we touched on earlier, actually, when we were talking was the responsibility of um, artists back in the day capturing British landscapes before the influx of foreign trees, uh, before, unfortunate diseases took out certain species, mm. and how older paintings become the only record we have of what the British landscape looked like when it was just the oak and the, and the elm and the ash and the birch and all the traditional ones. Is it, do you find there's something rewarding about looking at historical paintings and the new importance that they have? It's, a, it's an interesting one, that one. It's, it's, it's a record as well as just a romantic response. I don't think there ever was a time when there were just the native trees. I mean... The Spanish chestnut, well, nobody really knows when the Spanish chestnut came in. And the horse chestnut only came in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And Constable's painting of Flatford Mill is the sort of quintessential English landscape. But it's got Lombardy poplars in it, which mm, came in, true. what, 1758, yes. I think. Yes. So just, yes. you know, 70 years before he was painting, or 80 maybe. So, um, and, and the period I was looking at, the 18th and 19th century, there was an enormous influx of foreign trees, especially lots of trees from, from America. Um, you know, sort of hundreds and hundreds. Um, we're also touching on a very interesting uh, subject, which I think all of us can conjure up in our minds at least one uh, painting by Constable. And we are, we're, we're taught that his images, along with some a lesser extent Gainsborough's, are the quintessential images of what the English countryside is all about. Mm. And yet art history tells you a different story, the fact 
that Constable, while he wanted to be regarded as nature's painter, and he mm. referred to himself as that, um, he was seeking to position a contemporary landscape practice with um, painting from abroad, which was seen as being superior. And therefore, the way he composed his paintings was very much in response to artists like Claude, Claude Lorraine mm, and also uh, uh, Jacob Rysdale as well. And so I think one needs to bear that in mind. Oh, yes. I mean, yes. I think Constable is a European painter. Yes. And he had his greatest success in Paris. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But it's <laughs> what we mean by what is natural and... Yeah. Uh, well, Turner was doing the yes. same. He was using um, his travels through Italy to sort of use trees almost quite sparingly, using them to represent other things. There's one where they're almost cloud-like in their representation mm. as opposed to, to like trees. Um, I guess at, at what point... We've been sort of, I guess, touching more on trees in terms of their portrait form, in terms of them symbolising something. Going back a bit further in, in landscape paintings, what devices were trees used for before that stage? Was it framing devices, like were there any sort of general techniques? I mean, you spoke of repoussoir and, and various other things. Mm. Oh, well, that goes back to Claude Lorraine, mm. of course. I mean, that was a, a crucial aspect. Well, there was this whole challenge because landscape was... Landscape practice, when, when the Royal Academy was set up in 1768, it, that institution was set up because it, there was a very, it was a very conscious response to trying to, to position... Uh, a, a, a form of contemporary British art, which really didn't exist before then. And it was really in relation to to uh, continental Europe, where um, the, the patrons who had existed in this country uh, regarded art forms abroad, abroad as being more superior. And so, so um, landscape painting was a relatively new area of, of practice. and so Why weren't we doing it? Were we just too obsessed with self-portraits and the like? Were we all just noble and... Well, the patronage determined what... People what, didn't want to buy them. Yeah, I mean, well, Gainsborough's the obvious example, the fact that he mm. had to be a portrait painter rather than... Perhaps you'd like to say yes. more about this. he had to make a living from painting portraits, but he said yes. he'd rather go off and paint what he called landscapes. <laughs> well, he sort of sneaked in the two together, didn't he? Yes. After yes. a while, they do a portrait, but just sort of whack an oak tree behind them. And However, I, I, I don't know how, how you feel about this, that when you look at these portraits, uh, the um, trees, and this is something we haven't touched on, is the idea of trees being a cipher. So you know they're not really a tree that, that exists as such. And I'm, in other words, it's a type of formula, and, and we know that Gainsborough developed this particular feather brush technique, mm-hmm. and that these trees have a, almost a sense of unreality about them. How so? You mean they so, represented... Well, they're almost like stage, stage scenery. Okay. Yes, the, yeah, the later yes. landscapes, yeah. Yes. I mean, in the early ones, like Mr and Mrs yes. Andrews, then he's painting an actual tree. Mm. He actually includes a portrait of a tree. But later on, yes, they do become very feathery and very theatrical. Can you see instances where he's used the same setup and the same device, yes. but just different portraits all over the place? <laughs> yes. If you can do it once, why not repeat it? No one will know. <laughs> if it's only hanging in your house, no one will be able to compare it to their own, I guess. Mm, that's true. Yes, I mean, he, he, did, he had a family to keep up. He had two very expensive daughters, and, and his <laughs> wife had expensive tastes as well. And so he had to just keep painting. And I think, yeah, sometimes he, he reused motifs quite a lot. So we touched briefly on um, the Arboretum Britannicum, and there's also the uh, Sylvan Britannicum as well, and various sort of other collections which then moved into artists' handbooks of how to draw, whether it's feathery techniques mm. or whether it's more complicated. Was it the... I guess in the, in the olden days, you used to get a painting master who would teach you to paint, you would get the techniques from them, and then suddenly, for whatever reason, and perhaps you can tell me why people, amateurs, started going out and started learning, teaching themselves how to draw? Well, it was regarded as a gentlemanly and ladylike accomplishment to be able to draw. So in the 18th century, um, a lot of landowners actually were very good amateur artists, and some of them exhibited at the Royal Academy. And, um, and they'd have their artist friends to stay, and, and they were really keen on planting trees, drawing trees. There was this great vogue for landscape gardening. They were very interested in the different varieties of trees coming in. And so a large number of manuals were produced, which were just about how to draw trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, there are masses of these. So I wrote a whole chapter about them in my book. Um, yeah. 
Is, is there a modern collection? I mean, there are so many varieties of trees. Recently, ones we've newly discovered. Like, is someone doing the same? For, I'm sure now? there are books now. Or is there just the, photos now? To tell you how to do trees. Are there, are there, is there a good manual now for painting trees? Um, if there is, I, I would say that a professional artist would avoid it. Well, exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think, I think these manuals were mainly for amateurs. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a question, as, as, a, as a contemporary artist... You mentioned something in your book, which is there's sort of a, a divide in terms of perception within the industry in terms of those who are tackling uh, rural scenes, pastoral scenes, landscapes, and what is modern art and is gender-driven, whatever. How do you feel about that? Uh, we've touched upon a very interesting subject because um, there's a tendency not to think about trees as existing in env- urban environments. And I'm not referring to parks. I'm thinking of the streets that we walk along, uh, the motorways we drive mm-hmm. along as well. I mean, they are our serious habitats. And uh, it, it's something that's worth both documenting and responding to um, and it, it, it's that that is a I would say a more contemporary development of how trees uh, developed have developed in uh, in distinction to the parkland idea. Mm. And also, we haven't referred to as the, referred to the development of arboreta, mm-hmm. this idea of collections of trees, mm. which which is in one sense artificial, and it's actually analogous to the development of. Uh, painting collections, when you think it was the gentry mm. yeah. uh, that uh, developed these, by and large. Is it that people collected trees in the same way they collected Yes, artwork? yes. Yeah. But were putting things next to each other that shouldn't have been there, so it would be like putting... I know you can Quite get a, possibly, you know, yes. Renoir next yes. to, a, mm. to a Matisse, I don't know. Actually, that will work quite well. Yes, I think trees... I mean, we think of trees in the countryside and in the forest, but I think trees in urban settings... I mean, there's so much evidence now coming out about how trees are good for well-being um, and how they improve the air quality in cities. Mm-hmm. You know, they, well, um, the London Plains. The London are, Plains, yes. which were planted. But yes. they knew about that in the early 19th century. That's why they planted them all, which is amazing, really. Um, if only there was an organisation that were currently trying to get everyone to plant a lot of trees on the third. Yeah, we need, to, we yes. need to start with something like that, I think. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and also yes. trees in hospitals, trees in prisons... Um, I read an amazing uh, a book by Atul Gawande um, talking about palliative care, but how surrounding people in the later years with nature, with mm-hmm. animals, with wildlife, with, with flora and fauna really helped survival rates. There's a health benefit to the yep, natural world. Absolutely. Just before we came on, we were touching on uh, the, the cathedral, the arboreal, the tree cathedral mm. that was constructed from a, from a forest, I guess. I mean, there's no doubting that there is something spiritual and sanctuary about about trees in their very natural sense. And I think um, a lot of people now plant trees to remember a loved one. I think trees, because they're living things that grow for such a long time, perhaps they do help us to cope with our own mortality. When do we think we started doing that? I mean, that's a stupid question. I know that um, people used to... So there used to be a birth tree when you gave birth. Pagans used to plant the placenta beneath the tree. It's happened for a long time. But do you think this is a, a modern reimagining of the past? Why are people doing it so much now? I don't know, decline of conventional religion, maybe. <laughs> um, environmentalism as a sort of a new religion. Uh-huh. Um, or just the fact that we've always been druids, really, and we still are. <laughs> <laughs> Even if we don't know it. <laughs> I mean, Andrew, you, you've planted 97 trees in your garden slash oven. No, not that many. We, um, we, we, we've got around 90 trees, okay. of which we've planted, I think, over 50. So. Do you know what you want to plant next? Yes. Uh, I think we've now... Uh, Are you done? We're done, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, I mean, th- the thing is about uh, trees is that they all have a, a particular resonance. And it's something we were talking about earlier, about the autobiographical um, nature of trees. And I'm sure everybody in this room, and when we open ourselves up to leading questions, mm-hmm. there's probably a, a, a specific tree that has some resonance in uh, all your, your lives, uh, something, something to think about. And it could actually go back to this idea, which is fairly contemporary now, about having woodland burials and mm. having trees planted in memory of somebody. Uh, and I'll just jump in here, because we're in Gloucestershire, is that uh, my late mother had a tree planted at uh, a local um, 
um, nature reserve. It's um, Barnwood, the Barnwood Arboretum and Nature Reserve. There's a tree planted in memory mm. of my mother. So. Do we, we, we've spoken of how Constable was particularly partial to individual trees and uh, anthropomorphized them to an extent. Do we know if he planted any trees? Or was he merely an observer and a, a capturer? <sighs> no, I don't know. I don't think there's any evidence of that. I mean, I mean that's mean, fascinating. It would have been his yeah. father or his brother. But he had... Oh, yeah, did he have a garden? I don't know. Um, no, I don't know of him planting any trees. Are there gardens that survived that we know that artists... I mean, not necessarily for but owned themselves that were their sort of studio. Oh, we went I'm, to this I'm going to jump in here because I, we haven't got time to, to look at the European context and also Russia. And I, I worked in Russia for a while, so I could tell you all about that as well. Um, but um, you said about artists and gardens very quickly. A very good example is Max Lieberman, a German expressionist artist. Uh, his garden is still extant today in outer Berlin. And he de- interesting, he designed his garden in relation to a very go-ahead a museum curator who worked in Hamburg. So that's, that's a good, good, good example. Yeah. Specifically planted to inspire his paintings. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So he planted trees. Yes, mm. silver birches. Mm. He made his own arboreal studio. Exactly. Yeah. Um, before we open up, I just want to mention one thing which I thought was amazing, was that when, when Gainsborough couldn't get out, there was a suggestion that he used broccoli Oh, oh no, that's I think not that's, true. I, I think it's no. only based on one very dodgy yes, source, dodgy. and I don't yes. think it's true. I think it's like the story about Turner having himself tied to a mast in a, that's in a storm. That's <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lovely story, and everybody likes to believe it, but I don't think it's true. No. <laughs> um, uh, let's open it up, then. Has anyone got any questions? Can we get the lights up? Thank you. Great. Let's start over there, and then... There we go. In enjoying your relationship with cheese, do you recommend climbing <laughs> Climbing the trees. Climbing. Uh, I, I know what I think. How about the both of you? I haven't done it for a long time, I must say. Um, I, I don't know. I worry about people being encouraged to climb trees because every so often people fall out of them. Um, Isn't that not performance art? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, there is a, a serious response to that, is that we haven't touched on the subject of, of how we view trees. And I know my two fellow speakers were talking about their amazing experiences of the, the great sequoia and huge mm-hmm. bar, bar scale and whether, in fact, optically you can actually take in the presence of these uh, vast uh, mm. trees. And uh, just for myself, it's, it's something I've been thinking of investigating, of l- literally looking upwards so you forget about the, uh, the uh, dendritic quality of the tree and you're looking specifically at the crown of the tree. Mm-hmm. And if you think of the uh, ash, for example, in full leaf, the amazing pattern quality of the uh, uh, leaves of something which has a very specific aesthetic quality and takes you really into the form of uh, abstraction away from a particular mm. uh, figurative... That, that leads me to ask a question. I mean, you mentioned that we both went to Sequoia recently to see the Redwoods, and you can't see them all in one go, which yeah. is half oh. the wonder of yes. them. Is, how do we feel then about artists capturing trees in a reduced size in order to show them as a whole to people? But to remove the grandeur <laughs> from something is a hell of an act of violence, you could argue. Yes, but we change the scale of things all the time. I mean, I think about panoramic landscapes too, and then we reduce that to something on a, on a canvas. So why not do that with a tree? Um, any other questions? Great. Right at the front here. Yep, <laughs> coming around. Has anyone else got a question? We can line you up with a mic. Can we get a mic to this lady here afterwards? That'd okay. Be Thank you. Um, if trees are so important in people's lives and throughout history and portrayed in art, why have we got the smallest number of trees in Europe? Largest number of ancient trees. A- well, the, the woodland number trust of takes, woodland cover. Um, yeah, takes exactly. a nominal 1600s, I think. But um, um, I think the answer is the navy, the merchant navy, the royal navy. So a lot of them were chopped down for um, to be made into boats, ships rather, <laughs> sorry, not boats. Um, and then early industrialisation. So even in the 17th century, when John Evelyn wrote his book Silver which was written to encourage people to plant more trees because after the um, Civil War, the tree cover then... they were wor- Well, actually, they were worried from the 16th century that we didn't have enough trees because farmland was taking over. Um, even then, he suggested that the ironworks should be situated in America 
so they wouldn't have to take over our woodland. So it was already... And then there were sort of pit props for the mines and then tannin for the leather industry. Um, Am I right in saying that the Royal Academy offered awards for planting more trees? Yeah, uh, the Royal Society of Arts, yes, from... I can't remember the dates now. From the 1750s, I think, through to the 1840s, they offered awards, yes, for planting trees because it was seen as such an important thing to do. But then, you know, then we had... Another war, and after the First World War, again, people were well, really worried, and that's when the Forestry Commission to... got going. So we've just cut down our trees, I'm afraid. Yeah. What, what needs to happen to make us stop doing horrible things in order <laughs> to stop negating all these wonderful trees that we're hoping to plant? <laughs> I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. Well, that's why the Woodland Trust is so important. There you go. Everybody should join the Woodland Trust. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even say it. Uh, the lady over here, where is she? Put your hand up if you've got any other questions. If we can get the microphone to you quickly. That is this on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're talking about trees in art, but surely it's a sort of circle because don't we also plant trees to create art? Like Capability Brown planted whole mm. landscapes so you could then other people could sit there and paint them. So, I mean, you've done that in your garden too. Are the future artists going to come along to your garden and paint New trees. Yes, it's a wonderful okay. legacy. I mean, art, artists, artists and artist gardens uh, uh, believe 100% in, uh, in the concept of a legacy. So I, mm. I very much agree with that. The legacy of Brown's an interesting yeah. one because he used to remove quite a lot of trees from a landscape in order to paint it in a vertical yes. perspective. Yes. Mm. Um, and, of course, his, uh, you, you mentioned Capability Brown. What he created was not open to the public. It was... Or the select few. It, it is, is now. now. Oh, yeah. But that goes back to the idea of a legacy. Yes. Do you think he viewed it as art when he was making these, these curated landscapes? Oh, yes. Definitely. Yes. And he thought of trees. Well, well because he was... Again, it's the influence of Claude comes in. You know, in, in making landscapes like Stowe and Stourhead, they thought about the painters of the 17th century. And... Um, I could only find one thing by Capability Brown where he talked about trees in terms of light and shade and using contrast in the landscape. But he was obviously composing his landscapes in three dimensions as if they were paintings. Any more questions? Don't be shy. Hands up. Great. Man down at the front and then a lady back there. Perhaps I'm uh, broadening this a bit too much. I'm just interested in a couple of things because you both said something about Russia and I'm quite interested in <laughs> Russia and things Russian. So... Um, Firstly, you've answered a, a question for me because I find it very odd that Tolstoy in War and Peace is a section where one of the main characters is going through a forest which is mainly of um, fir and beech, uh, mm -hmm. birch, which birch. are the two common species. Um, but he spots uh, an oak. And there's this idea that, that uh, he feels, that, well, the tree feels the same way as he does. I thought this was very odd until you mentioned that pe people here... Um, thought the same at, uh, at one time. I'd never come across <laughs> the idea before. Oh, how um, interesting. And can I just add that I don't know if there's anybody here who has any Russian antecedents or links that um, the Russians uh, believed, or believe, hopefully believe now as well, that the forest had a saint, Saint Basil. So, the, so this idea that there was actually a, a, a spiritual the, the, uh, mm. representative the forest. Yes. Begin the whole of the Orthodox Church. Yes, yes, but he was regarded as being the saint of the forest. Do we think that, through your study, we'll come on to your question in a moment, um, do we think that there, you've discovered anything in your research and through your painting that has come to define what is intrinsically British about our perception of the trees? I mean, because we're technically looking at British art here. Like, what, what um, I mean, is there anything? I mean, I asked that knowing what you're going to say. I'm going to leap in here and because it's, it's a research project that I've just started about the concept of green truth, truth which is related to a, a mystic called uh, Hildegard of Bingham. And I love Hildegard. So, uh, She's a wonderful woman. Yes. And, but I think when we think of England or Britain, because we, seem to, we do mm. conflate the two, uh, rightly or wrongly, we always think, I think for a lot of us, we think of the colour green. Mm. Green and pleasant, pleasant land. land. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Yes. What I was There's something glorious about looking at all these artworks and so much poetry and prose. Yes. 
Russian literature as well feeds into it. We've been looking at paintings and we haven't yeah. even touched on sculpture. There's yeah. so much of what is art that lends itself into it. But to answer your question, I think almost everything you think of as being typically British in landscape or landscape painting, you find it applies to other countries too. So, for example, I was going to say the reverence for ancient trees because we have more of them. And in 1770, Horace Walpole said, that's because we're a free country. If there was an ancient tree in France, the king would have it chopped down and sent off to the navy. However, in, a, in New England, in America, in, in the 1830s and 40s, there's tremendous reverence for ancient trees there too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like the Charter Oak in Hartford. So... And then the idea of the oak tree as being the national tree, but just about every other country has the oak their as their national mm. tree. So, yeah. yeah. All uh, the different shaped acorns fighting for yes. viability. Wonderful. Down at the front. Just a footnote to the Russian observation, really, because I, I spent a year doing quite a lot of work in Baltic republics in Latvia. Um, and actually on Midsummer's Day, the midnight sum, everyone, the men all put bits of oak tree on, on their heads, the crowns, the women, all with flowers, and, mm. and everyone disappears off into the forest to look for the flower on the fern, no questions asked. But actually, <laughs> I, I, it, it's wonderful, this sense of nature, I mean, where the folk culture and the number of surviving mm. folk songs, which saw them through what, what mm. they call in Latvia still the sinking revolution, um, by singing folk songs in the park in the center of Riga was how they saw off the Soviet army, actually. And everybody in Latvia, according to their birth date, has a tree that is special to them. And mm. if you're feeling low and depressed, you go and find your tree um, mm. and you wrap yourself around it till you feel stronger and can cope with life. And wow. And I, I asked for mine, I was told my, my birthday, it's the hornbeam for me, and I'm, I'm totally happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> How about the two of you? Do you have a particular species of tree that you relate to, that you hug when you're feeling down? Um, um, I'll you. <laughs> <laughs> jump in. Um, I don't go, go for hu hugging trees as such. I, I, I think it's not very practical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, to be serious, I, I'm rather taken with uh, the response of poets like uh, Wordsworth and also, uh, I think it was Coleridge, mm -hmm. uh, who both uh, very much uh, admired the beauty of um, the silver birch. And Coleridge, I think, described the silver birch as the lady of the woods and so as somebody who... Uh, uh, is a female artist, so I can uh, relate direct, very much directly uh, mm. to that uh, description. Christiana? So in spring, especially May, when the flowers are coming out, I love the horse chestnuts, but by this time of year, my preference has shifted to the beech. I love beech trees too. So you're polyarborous. Yes, I'm polyarborous, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> um, wonderful. Any other questions? One down there, yeah. Oh, there's one here too. There's one more question over there. Maybe if we make that the last one, that would be fine. Oh. Oh. Can I just mention David Hockney? Because he's an artist Ooh. who's working today. And so is that David Hockney, did we yes, get? Yes, David Hockney. And has, in fact, done a series of paintings of trees in East Yorkshire, the same trees at different seasons. Yes. And that mm. was what you seemed to be referring to earlier. And they're all, they're all available on display in, in Saltair in West Yorkshire. Yes. Interesting enough, we were having a discussion about Hockney just before we came on here mm. about how through whether it's portrait presentations of people or of trees, you seem to get a lot of Hockney out of it and maybe less of the personality of the tree mm. and of the person. Mm. But uh, as we're not talking about David Hockney, I'm going to leave that one well alone. Um, <laughs> over here, final question. It's just been asked, really. It's just that I was thinking of David Hockney's drawings of trees. He did a great many beautiful charcoal drawings mm -hmm. of trees, which I mm. think are particularly lovely. I wondered which other contemporary artists that you thought um, had some particular uh, knowledge of trees. Right. Well, I, I'm, other I'm, than I'm, I'm going to other than myself. <laughs> I, I'm far too modest to do, do that. Um, that I will leap in and say all the other arborealists, my fellow arborealist painters and, and uh, printmakers, and uh, you should visit our official website to see all their beautiful works. Mm. Christiana, anyone that you would particularly recommend? I would agree with that. Thank but you. I do think David Hockney's trees are wonderful too. Yeah. Okay, two final questions from me. Mm. Um, you've just seen the Redwoods for the first time. I'm sorry? You've just seen, seen the Redwoods, Redwoods for the first time. Uh, yes, yes. Has that changed your perception of what a tree is? Having studied them for years and now having seen the largest tree in the world? Well, I'm very lucky that where I live um, in South Oxford, in our local park, we have 14 um, 
giant sequoia trees, i.e. what we call Wellingtonias, although the Americans wanted to call them Washingtonias. I think that's so funny. Um, so, but seeing the massive ones, yes, I mean, it has... I, I mean, I've always felt there's something really amazing about seeing a very ancient tree. So going to see the Anchorwit Yew, for example, which is near Runnymede, and there's this theory that maybe it witnessed the signing of Magna Carta and so on. Um, yeah, I do get that sense. And I got it again with the sequoias, I just, just on a larger scale, I think. I think we've got many magnificent trees. The Tortworth chestnut. Oh, do you know the Tortworth chestnut? That's not far from here, is it? No, it's not That's far in Gloucestershire. That's a wonderful tree. Love that. I've been yeah. going around the country quite a lot lately to mm. do interviews with people. And the most amazing thing is when you start to talk about trees, everyone's got... You've got to go and see the local one. Yes. Well, you've got to go and see that one there. Um, <laughs> tomorrow I'm going to go down and see a whole load of yew trees down in... Uh, somewhere beginning with P. Yeah. There you go, all together now. Yeah. <laughs> and the song sheet, and we're all going. Um, and one final question uh, to you, Angela. How do you feel painting a tree using a brush that's made out of wood? <laughs> well, sitting at the Cheltenham Literary Festival, where I believe that books um, have pages in them that involve yeah. something to do with chopping down trees. <laughs> I, I think it's it's something that one accepts as uh, as part of the uh, uh, in, uh, inevitable history of uh, quite. And if, if anyone doesn't already know it, the word book comes from the yes. word for beech. Yes, yes of so course. welcome to the Cheltenham Literature Festival about beech trees. Um, please join me in thanking Angela and Christiana. That's been amazing. Thank you very much indeed. If you would like to buy their books, they're available outside in Waterstones. And also, if you'd like to know more about the Woodland Trust or even become a member, if you are not already, there are people with very sharply pointed flyers on your way out. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for coming. Oh, the oak and the ivy.